Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. All six of those verses just read are worthy of your consideration. In fact, you could spend an entire lesson just on verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful consolation and a wonderful reassurance to everyone who's attempting to walk the way God would have us to walk in this world. And I would commend these, uh, the reading and the study of these verses to you in your own private study because uh, that's where you really get down uh, to the nitty-gritty of it. But I want to really lock in on verse 6, if we can, for the purpose of this lesson this morning. The New King James says, But to be carnally minded is death. Spiritually minded is life and peace. Obviously, there's a contrast, there's a difference between carnality and spirituality in Paul's mind as he's writing this verse. And, and this morning, I want us to isolate and identify exactly what that is. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be carnal? But we're going to particularly focus on the quality of spirituality. And just because it's a, it's a commodity that you cannot see by looking at, you can certainly see the fruits of it, but you can't see the quality of it itself, does not mean that it isn't something that can be identified and then developed in our lives. Turn over one book, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think we'll see exactly what Paul means by the other side of the coin when he's talking about one to be carnally minded. The book of 1 Corinthians is written to a church that had 12 major sins in it. In fact, this whole book is written to address and to hopefully rectify those situations. In chapter 5, there was a man who was living in an incestuous relationship with his own mother-in-law. There was a man who fell out drunk one time when he was serving the Lord's Supper. That is, if they had the Lord's Supper. Most of the time, they would just say, let's go to the back and have a common meal. They'd turn the Lord's Supper into something that was common and ordinary. And those are just a few of the problems. So when you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul then says to those Corinthian Christians, and I believe he was saying this not in a spirit of indictment, but a spirit of love, wanting them to correct the situation. He said, I couldn't even write unto you as into spiritual, but as into carnal. You weren't able to receive the things that I really needed to say most to you. And then one chapter back, in chapter 2, verse 14, he had earlier said, the world cannot receive the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Two things, I think, are clear from these verses. Number one, spirituality is a very real and tangible commodity. It is something that can be identified, isolated, and then developed. And secondly, in light of chapter 2, verse 14 that we just noted, it's a power of discernment that gives those who possess it an ability that people don't have who are not spiritually minded. It is an insight, it is a a perceptual ability that someone who is spiritual is able to see things 
on the spiritual plane that those who are not spiritually discerned are not able to see. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. If a person has two glasses of water in front of him and a piece of litmus paper in his hand, he might dip the, the litmus paper in one glass without changing the color of the paper. That is, if I still remember my 10th grade chemistry. And then he might dip it in the other water, and and that would change the color of the litmus paper. Well, an observer might ask for an explanation, only to be told, well, I really don't know why the color changed. I can't explain it. But a first-year chemistry student might step up and say that the chemical elements in the second glass of water acted on the chemical elements in the paper while there were no such chemicals in the first glass of water. Now, hopefully that would suffice as an explanation, but... He or she is in a a, a situation, has enough understanding about chemistry to be able to give us a rational explanation of why that worked in one case but didn't work in the other. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about on a spiritual plane in the 1 Corinthians passage. He was saying that it was difficult to write to people who actually were New Testament Christians about certain matters because the Corinthians were so spiritually lacking that it would be very hard for them to get his point of view. It would just go above their heads. They would not understand what Paul was trying to communicate to them. So in chapter 2, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's saying that there, there are certain things that the world just doesn't get because they are spiritually discerned. Now, typical of Paul's emphasis on spirituality throughout his writings, let me give you a very brief cross-section of scriptures on this subject. Once again, 1 Corinthians 2.14 is a great place to begin. But the natural man, he says, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Have you heard anyone laugh or deride spiritual qualities or spirituality in our world? Absolutely. Nor can he know them, he says, because they are spiritually discerned. Then over in chapter 6, the same Paul, uh, chapter 6 of Galatians, that is, verse 1, He says, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So clearly there were those who had an advanced level of spirituality, who are more spiritually mature that Paul is calling on to address someone who has some sin in his or her life that is so obvious that other people can see it. So let those who are spiritual restore such a one He says, in a spirit of meekness. And then one more, Colossians 1 verse 9. For this reason, Paul says, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Here it is, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Again, you have to go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14 and plug that in in order to know exactly what it is that Paul is talking about in the Colossian letter. What then is spirituality? I think it's a quality that like God himself does not lend itself to the limitations of a worded definition. I believe spirituality is better understood by how it behaves, by what it does, what it does not do, rather than just by looking at the dictionary and getting a, a definition. Some things are better described and illustrated than they are defined. I think spirituality is one of those things. So we can bring out its characteristic qualities, we can learn how it acts, and to some extent we can describe it. And then here's the real challenge for all of us. We can begin to seek to develop it in our lives because clearly God's word says that's what we need to be striving for. Whatever level of spirituality you are at right now, again, I've often said Christianity is like an airplane. When you stop, you drop. So if you're not making progress, if you're not growing, then you are actually 
regressing spiritually. And so Paul and the other inspired writers are saying we need to be growing every day more and more into the image of Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let me give you quickly three or four characteristics so that we will be able to know, identify, and then cultivate spirituality in our own lives. The Bible teaches that true spirituality is concerned about right values and about right attitudes and motives. Not just doing the right thing, but also doing it for the right reason. Having purity of heart when we go about doing whatever task that that God has assigned to us in his word. For example, a business concern may sponsor a religious program or maybe a religious event. And in that program or event, truth may be taught. But the business itself or the people who are part of that business may never be moved by spirituality in what they're doing because the only reason that they're doing it is because they are serving a religious clientele and they want to bring more customers in. So what they're doing is kind of spiritual in a sense of that the truth is being taught, people are, are being encouraged to be more religious, but again, there's no spirituality in the motive. A preacher may campaign on some issue. He may preach a sermon more from the prominence that he thinks that he will bring him than for a deep longing to be able to save and edify people. So he's, he's preaching the truth. Paul even mentioned that in Philippians chapter 1. There's some who preach the truth out of strife. They've, they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it for the wrong motive. Over in Mark chapter 10, the Bible actually gives us a perfect illustration. The rich young ruler asked Jesus what good thing did he need to do in order to gain eternal life. He, he wanted to lock in on the one thing that was absent in his life, that if he could just add that one activity, that one quality, then he would have his ticket to heaven punch. So he asked the Lord, what good thing can I do to gain eternal life? But the answer that the Lord gave, as you recall that account, grieved him. And the man went away not only sorrowful but disobedient. Why? Because he was lacking in real spiritual desire. He did not have the the desire or the motive to want to do everything that the Lord had commanded him to do. And so he decided this is a deal breaker. And he walked away sorrowfully. I know that there are some preachers who decide where they will move next on the basis of who can provide the most generous support. Or which place will provide the quickest step up the corporate ladder, not where he's most needed. So I'm saying that true spiritual thinking will steer itself along the lines of minimum selfishness and maximum possibility for service. We will ask ourselves if we are spiritual people, not what is best for me. What is it that I want? What are my ambitions and my desires? What are my longings in life? But what, what will help me to be of greatest maximum service in the Lord's kingdom? Even if it means that I have to step back and everybody is focused upon the desires and the needs of other people. That's exactly what God is telling us that we need to do. The way up is down in the kingdom of Christ. Here's a second quality of real spirituality. It's tested by how much emphasis is placed on the comparative values of temporal and eternal rewards. Temporal rewards can be described as those positions in life that feed the pride. That give a person prominence that puts your name on the at least somewhere in the print if not the headlines of the local newspaper that afford a larger financial income or otherwise bestow rewards that belong only to this transient world and so if i'm not spiritual i'm looking for i'm looking for a payoff this side of eternity 
I want my reward to be tangible. I, I want it to be a figure that I can write down in my checkbook. While redemptive or eternal rewards belong to that category of things that I think are powerfully indicated in the life of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 26. Well, the Bible talks about by faith Moses did these things. And a part of that description, as you recall, says that he, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season because, and here's where we really need to focus, he looked into the recompense of reward. Moses was looking out of this world for his retirement plan. He was looking somewhere beyond this world for the ultimate reward for his faithful service to the Lord. And that's the kind of spirituality that we need to reflect in our own lives. Maybe that's why it seemed so easy for Moses to refuse the throne of Egypt, even when it was offered to him. To go far from home and to serve as a shepherd in the country where he would later lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage and toward the promised land, at least. It explains why Moses could be patient and long-suffering for 40 years through all those wilderness wanderings while the whole nation of Israel was complaining and, and some of them outright rebellious. Why he could take a clear view of that promised land and then turn and walk to a place yet unnamed and lie down in death without a single friend or, or, or family member present. You see, Moses could do that because he looked unto the recompense of reward. The temporal enjoyments, the satisfactions missed by Moses in the course of his life were absolutely many if you want to tabulate all the things that he sacrificed in order to do God's will. But he missing them did not seem to bother him that much because he looked into a recompense of reward. He realized that his payoff, his reward, the ledger of God's justice was not going to be meted out in this life. Now, a quick observation for application in our lives. If we're looking for the payment, the reward for Christian service in this life, you're going to be disappointed. Now, I realize that this is the abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10, verse 10. And I realize that the Lord said that if you, if you give to him and to his cause with the proper motivation and heart, then you're going to be you're going to be repaid for that, Luke chapter 6, 38, if you want the Bible for that. But we also understand that sometimes because we're trying to live the way God would have us to live, we're buying into a lot more problems and a lot more stress and a lot more strife that we would not have if we never, if we never named Jesus as the number one priority in our life, if we never tried to live the Christian life. I know people who've lost their jobs. I know people who've been disowned by their families because they became New Testament Christians. They're making sacrifices every day. But you see, if they're spiritual, they realize that the, the ultimate reward doesn't come in this life. Sometimes, just like Paul, we're going to suffer affliction. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16 and verse 33. And that's one supreme quality of true spirituality. Look for a moment, if you will. Let me give you one more illustration before we move on to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And I want to read verses 17 through 24 from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus, this is Paul. 
he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they'd come to him, he said to, to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always watch this. I always lived among you. When Paul is writing then to the Ephesian elders, he's not saying, I hope you'll remember the many things I taught you. He's saying, I hope you watched the way I lived when I was among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. I, I have no idea what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. But he says, and, and except that the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. How's that for a Christmas present? Paul says, I don't know what the gift's going to be when I open it up, but I do know that the promise of the Holy Spirit to me has been wherever I go, whatever city I go to, there's going to be trials and tribulations. Wow, talk about wanting to go fall on something sharp. But then he goes on in verse 24, here's the payoff. But none of those things move me. That is not my reason for existence. That isn't why I'm living the Christian life, so that the Lord can pat me on the back and say, you did a good job, son, and now here's your reward. No, he says, none of those things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, this really explains a lot. The reason Paul was so successful in his ministry Listen carefully, church. The reason Paul was so successful in his ministry is because he lived right himself. And that's one of the qualities, one of the tangible qualities of real spirituality. No one is really spiritual until he can control himself. And Paul practiced what he preached about discipline and self-control. And in addition to that, he was willing to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, just as he would write in one of the later letters. And folks, I'm just saying that until we can cry, until we can cry and shed real tears over our own sins and the sins of a lost and dying world, until we can cry over the state of our world, we lack much of that spiritual dynamism that brought the Lord into this world to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19.10 says. And then you can read over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul's emphasis on real spirituality. We look not at the things he said that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal in nature, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And so Paul says, that's what, that's what God's people, not just me, but all of God's people need to lock in on. The most important things in life are not things. The most important qualities in life are things you cannot see. They are devotion to God, love for God, and love for our fellow man. All of those things have clear, tangible fruits, but the qualities themselves are conditions of heart that God wants us to cultivate, develop, and grow in every day that we live on this planet. Quality number three, spirituality is measured largely by the readiness with which we judge others and the manners in which those judgments are expressed. Let me boil that down and tell you in just a few brief North Georgia words what that means. It means if I am very quick to judge and criticize someone else, I am not a spiritual person. 
Now, that does not mean that no judgments are to take place. Jesus said, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So there is a righteous judgment. And we know that judgments, those discernments have to take place for the world to still spin on its axis in order for life to go on. Judgments have to take place. Don't miss that. But if I am quick to judge, if I am quick to criticize, and I'm always looking at the speck in someone else's eye and ignoring the plank that's in my own eye, I'm not a spiritual person. And that isn't because Randy says so. That's because God has clearly said that in his word, and he wants each of us to appreciate and and to actuate that quality of spirituality in our lives. You know, some people judge others untrustworthy until they have proven themselves worthy of trust. Others assume that people are honorable until they prove themselves dishonorable. Some say, I just met him. But there's something about that guy that I just don't trust or I just don't like. You know what? Those differing judgments come much nearer revealing the heart of the person doing the judging than it does of the heart of the person who is being judged. How people judge sermons indicates a great deal about the person who is passing the judgment. And I don't mean that toward anyone here as a personal indictment. I'm just saying comments often reveal the spirituality or the lack of spirituality in the heart of a person who judges a sermon. Some people will hear a convicting message and they will repent. And some hear a convicting message and they will resent. And that's the way it's always been ever since the gospel's been preached, Galatians 4.16. Paul was saying to his fellow Christians in Galatia, Do I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? There are some in Galatia who didn't like Paul because he preached the truth to them. And they didn't want to hear it. The man Paul, who wrote so much, as we've already seen this morning, about spiritual values, wrote that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's three of the qualities of real love in 1 Corinthians 13, of course, which is another way of saying that love trusts and it does not despair and it's very patient. And these are all qualities of the spiritual person. So how can one develop the quality of spirituality? I want to hit two or three things very quickly, and then we'll be through. Number one, good reading. Good reading is vitally important. That may sound a little strange to put that at the top of the list, but let me tell you, we need to fill ourselves with good spiritual material. We need to do it on a frequent, by frequent, I mean daily basis. We are the sum total of all the thoughts that have passed through our minds. Let me say that again. Every one of us here in the whole world is inhabited by people who are the sum total of the thoughts that pass through our minds. Francis Bacon said, reading maketh a full man, writing maketh an exact man, and speaking maketh a ready man. In Cornbread English, we appreciate the wisdom of Will Rogers, who one time said, all I know is what I read in the papers. Well, I can certainly relate to that, because I've said from this pulpit before, I can honestly say I have never had an original thought in my entire life. I don't necessarily take pride in that, but I've never, I've never, all I know is what I have learned and read and heard from others. We really all are a composite of what we learn from other people or from the materials that we are saturating ourselves with. The passing of good thoughts through our minds will leave the, the, the nature of those thoughts on our, na- on, on our hearts and on our character long after the thought itself has been forgotten. And, of course, the Bible is the mind of God. 
as well as good materials related directly or indirectly to the Bible, and, and just materials which leave the mind pointed toward something worthwhile, ought to be a part of a person's daily reading habits. Every Christian home ought to have some religious periodicals made available, not only to the adults, but to the children at their level as well, and a useful Bible-related library. And you're thinking, now, Randy, you're talking about a lot of money. No, I'm not. I mean, everybody needs a good concordance for their home. Start with a good concordance. Everybody needs a good Bible dictionary. Everybody needs those word helps that will allow us to go to Scripture and go, I don't know what that word means, and we can look it up and we can find out what that means in a spiritual context. Maybe we need to begin to, to, to gather and collect some, some good commentaries, the Truth For Today commentary series. You can buy them one at a time, and, and you'll have a resource that your family can use for the rest of their natural lives. Surround yourselves with good books and actually read them. But especially, you need to be saturating yourself with the good book. After all, David said, your word have I laid up in my heart that I may not sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 11. Secondly, learn the value of meditation. Think of it like this. Reading is, is eating. Meditation is digestion. Silence can be a powerful thing. And especially if we train our minds to use those moments of silence to think about crucial and important things. Said another way, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Psalm 1, verse 1. Meditation resembles a machine that recharges itself while using up its own power. Indifference can be thrown off through meditation on spiritual and wholesome and healthy themes. The will and the resolve can be strengthened. The best course of action can be formulated. The heart can be made to be more tender by what we meditate on, what we think on, what we allow to be, what we cause to be the dominating thoughts of our minds day after day. The Bible doctrine of fasting and prayer, I believe, is based on the value of this kind of quiet meditation. Listen to this, Psalm 4, verse 4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. What's David talking about? He's talking about meditation. Not transcendental meditation, but meditation. Thinking about, chewing on, digesting God's word on a daily basis. What about this one? Psalm 77, 5 and 6. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient time, called to remembrance my song in the night. What is your song in the night? My song of the night, David says, I communed with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. When I could not sleep at night, what did I think about? I would lie there thinking about my relationship to God. I would think about my spiritual qualities. I would think about what I need to shore up in my life so that I can be the man or the woman that God would have me to be. Meditation, folks, can be faith building. We become what we believe and we believe what we have thought out in our moments of meditation. Be warned, though. Meditation can be, can be breed, can breed either hate or love, or revenge or mercy, or carnality or spirituality. It all depends on what you allow yourselves to meditate, to think on, on a daily basis. And that's why Paul urged the Christians in Philippi to guard what they thought about. Don't ever forget Philippians 4 verse 8 where Paul said, I want you to think about what you're thinking about. And he gave us a list of things that we need to be thinking about every day. Thirdly and finally, there's great value in setting a goal and driving straight toward it. Thomas Edison was once offered a consolation 
by a well-intended friend, you know the story, who said, Thomas, it must be a very discouraging thing to fail in a thousand successive experiments, to which Edison replied, I'm not discouraged in the least because I haven't made one failure. I've just found a thousand ways it won't work. And that's positive and constructive thinking. That's our approach to life, whatever it is that God wants you to do in your life. The Christian may experience many things in life that will baffle him or her and left to human standards. They may feel like they failed. But a vital part of that goal for each of us is determined by how much we've been worth to others in the reaching of their goals. How much we've helped others to be able to attain and to be everything that God would help them to be. That's the servant's heart that God has commended to us. And you can find that on just about every page of the New Testament. Note that principle works in our families too. I'm being a good dad or a good mom if I help my children become everything that God wants them to be. Because you see, a Christian does not live in isolation. Philippians 2.4, look not each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. Galatians 6.2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So set realistic, challenging spiritual goals and strive to reach those goals. I'm talking about things like daily Bible study, daily prayer life, doing acts of kindness and service to others. And, and then frequent examination is required if I'm going to be a truly spiritual person. Examine yourselves is a favorite saying of Paul. And it's a favorite saying of his for a reason. The Lord also said, why do you behold the speck that's in your brother's eye? And consider not the beam or the log that is in your own eye. You see, in order to attain the kind of spiritual personality that God wants and expects of his children requires frequent and thorough examination, self-examination. Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith, prove or test your own selves, is the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. By the way, we also need to be honest with ourselves when we do that self-examination. And we need to commit ourselves to having a long memory. Here's what I mean by that. In James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, James likens God's word to a spiritual mirror. And he said, when you look into that mirror, you see what kind of man or person you are. But if you're not careful, you will you'll rec recognize by looking into the mirror, that is God's word, you'll see your own reflection. You'll see what it is that God wants you to be doing with your life, what he wants you to stand for, what kind of man or woman he wants you to be. And if you're not very careful, James says, you'll walk away from that experience and forget, remember that phraseology, and forget what manner of man you were. As soon as we turn our backs on the mirror, all of a sudden, we, we've forgotten what it was that I needed to change, what it was that God wanted to, 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 to make over in my life. So I need to get back on the potter's wheel, even though that's uncomfortable, and Lord, let the Lord mash on me and make me and mold me into the vessel that is suitable and best for his service. I'm convinced, folks, that being a Christian is the greatest thing that a person can be on this sin-cursed earth. Some folks can't enjoy, though, the beauty of a flower because of the mud and the slush from which that flower grows. And there are some who cannot enjoy being a child of God in light of the mire of the society in which we now live. But here's a powerful payoff. The spiritual mind, Paul says, can point the minds of the world to the flower of life, to the rose of Sharon, to the lily of the valley, and truly enjoy sonship in God's forever family. 
If you need to become a part of that family this morning through your faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, we're here to assist you while we stand, while we sing.